1: Thank you.
2: Hello, and welcome to episode 74 of the Partly Political Broadcast. I'm Tien and Duyep, and like Prime Minister and the only living person to ever have rigor mortis, Theresa May, I too think British people have never truly felt home in the EU. Which is why we treated it like a hotel, airing our dirty laundry hoping someone else would clean it up, demanding services just for us, and now, after trashing the place, are not entirely sure what we did, but realise we aren't happy about it, as we have a hangover that really, really sucks. But still we're asking for a complimentary late checkout. On Friday, Theresa May made her lowly anticipated speech in Florence to an audience with absolutely no one from the European Commission in it, and instead only people who'd flown from Britain attending. Yes, the British Prime Minister went to Florence essentially to tell British people how important it is that in future it should be harder to go to Florence. That's not what she said exactly, although I'm not 100% clear on what she did say as I spent ages watching the broadcast trying to adjust the volume to get rid of the aggressive sound of white noise before realising that that was just May talking in the way she usually does. The main bulk of her speech appeared to be to try to appeal to both leavers and remainers and she successfully did that by making both groups feel angry and underwhelmed all at once. I know it's an easy comparison to say the main content of the speech, you know if any of it was content, sounded like a pathetic break up chat, but it's very hard to compare it to much else. I mean Theresa May pointed out that the UK have chosen to leave, but hey, the EU is doing really well anyway and is sure it'll be fine and maybe we can just be really good friends before then asking if we can have an extra two years transition period after March 2019, you know for clearing our stuff out because we don't really have anywhere else sorted to stay yet. I almost wonder if we'd have had a better result if we'd just ghosted the EU and sent sexts whenever we were in town hoping it would work out as a friends with benefits scenario. May mentioned the big issues of Northern Ireland, EU citizens rights and the so-called divorce bill but didn't actually commit to any decisions on any of them, making me more certain than ever that Theresa May runs off algorithms made up of things people read out aloud from newspapers because they don't understand them. The Prime Minister finished after what felt like fucking years by saying it would be up to the leaders to set the tone, which if that's the case, based on that speech, it'll be a horrible endless droning noise for at least three years. If that wasn't disappointing enough, Foreign Secretary and happy-slapped uncooked dough, Boris Johnson, announced that he would resign last week if Theresa May didn't take his 10-point Brexit plan into consideration. And he didn't mean into consideration as something to burn for when we run out of manure. But according to his allies, Boris Johnson did force the Prime Minister's hand, so she didn't opt for the Norway option. Because hey, why would Britain want to mimic the happiest country in the world in 2017? So Johnson yet again let the nation down by not resigning, leaving Britain without even a glimmer of hope that no matter how shitty things get, we at least wouldn't have to see his stretch near a face every day. But of course, they weren't the only things the government promised to deliver on and failed this week, as after years of insisting austerity worked and that the Conservatives could be trusted on the economy, Financial Ratings Agency, the appropriately named Moody's, downgraded the UK from an AA1 to an AA2, which, to be fair, does spell the noise I make to show people screaming at everything that I feel the same. In other UK news, it is now conference season with the Liberal Democrats kicking it all off last week in Bournemouth, which is my least favourite part of the Bourne trilogy. Leader because nobody else wanted to be, Vince Cable, opened the conference by telling all four attendees and the cleaner that he would lead the Liberal Democrats back to power, which begs the question, how do you go back to somewhere you've never been before? Meanwhile, the Labour conference is in Brighton this week because where else suits the opposition party quite like a city where even the beach is really hard work? Labour leader and man who TV adverts for mail-order CD collections are aimed at, Jeremy Corbyn, told press on the morning of conference day one that he would be listening to Labour members' calls to remain in the single market, but warned that it might hinder the government's ability to protect jobs. Though considering the current government, I'm not sure how you can hinder something that isn't there in the first place. At the Labour conference, members decided that there are to be no votes on Brexit during the event, because the only thing that helps the public have faith in an opposition party more than them not having a stance on the biggest political change in the UK in years is them not even having a stance on having a stance on it. Meanwhile, in Germany, Lego hair model Angela Merkel is still Chancellor after her party, Christian Democratic Union, has come out on tops in the Bundestag elections, with the opposition Social Democratic Party trailing behind. And while much of the world should just be in shock that an election has turned out pretty much as predicted for the first time in years, although less in shock because it is Germany, sadly, it was also predicted that the far-right populist party, AFD, would come third, and they have with over 13% of the vote share. This means they're set to get about 90 seats in the German parliament, which will likely mean some very nationalist policies could get pushed through. And that's hugely worrying for Germany, and also a real shame that the notion that, of course, Germany's election turned out exactly as predicted might not be the only old-fashioned stereotype of that country that may be resurfacing after this. AFD leader Frank Petrie has already resigned and decided to be an independent candidate, which at least bodes well for the rest of the country who aren't fascists if the party who seek to unite everyone through nationalist ideals can't even stop themselves dividing. The other party leader, however, Alexander Gauland, have said that AFD will fight off the foreign invasion, so let's just hope they mean they'll be spending a lot of time indoors taking vast amounts of vitamin C. Speaking of fascists, US President and only known child of the Mother of Vinegar, Donald Trump, has spent most of his weekend condemning American football players for not being patriotic enough. It seems that in 2017, kneeling down during the National Anthem to protest against racial prejudice doesn't follow the American dream anymore. Though to be fair, when the dream has become a repetitive terrifying nightmare of a giant orange demagogue shouting until everything becomes devoured in his mouth bile to make it appear similar to his own image, then it is much better if you skip patriotism for a little while. This followed a week where Donald Trump made a speech to the UN where he described North Korea's leader and teacup garbage pail kid Kim Jong-un as Rocket Man. I can only assume Trump is too stupid to remember anyone's actual names, so his visors have to give him dumbed down tags for them all. I'm guessing Theresa May is known as Handy Holdy Robot, Putin is probably Scary Daddy, and Justin Trudeau is known as the one Melania keeps looking at all funny. In his speech, Donald Trump called North Korea and Iran rogue nations, which I think means they're part of the Star Wars saga. And he said that they're all going to go to hell, which is just below Trondheim in Norway, so I hope they pack their winter gear. The president of the UN, Swedish Foreign Minister Margot Volström, said Trump's speech was the wrong speech at the wrong time to the wrong audience. I'm guessing the right speech would have been anything said by almost anyone else, the right time, probably the 1940s, and the right audience, anyone who still watches Michael Bay films. North Korea responded to Trump's comments by Kim Jong-un calling Trump a mentally deranged dotard, which is an old English term for someone going senile. Having Kim Jong-un, a man that supposedly had surgery to look like his granddad, call you bonkers should definitely be a wake-up call to Trump. It reminds me of when I was told I was wasted by the resident pisshead at our uni. Really shocked me and made me not drink for at least a whole day. Okay, half a day. Okay, look, I had a water in between beers, but hey, I definitely took note. Trump's top aides warned him about escalating things with North Korea, but as we know, it made no difference to his tweetings because, sadly, the Donald would only take notice of advice about, say, a meteor nearly hitting the earth if he misconstrued the story because it said Miss World in the headline. So, instead, Trump tweeted that Kim Jong-un is a madman who would be tested like never before, but who knows what that means from someone who'd struggle with an intelligence quotient challenge. Either way, things were indeed getting even more stupid and scary between the two nations led by the result of lifelong bad hair days. And Japanese Minister Shinzo Abe has announced that he is calling an election a whole year early, predicted to be on October 22nd amid the national crisis of threats from North Korea. Abe is doing this because he's gained popularity in recent weeks. (laughs) And I mean, I wonder why. I mean, I can't imagine how everyone would be distracted from the allegations against him of cronyism when all they have to worry about is all those sirens warning them of imminent missile strikes. I sort of get the feeling that Abe is the kind of leader who'd hold an election in a classroom just after a bee's flown in. And that is a really fun note to start the Hello admin with, isn't it? Um, Hello. I mean, I am struggling to find a comedy angle for all the possibilities of World War III starting, apart from the fact that, hey, the logo could look really cool because it'd be like three Ws, but the last one would be on its side, like a three. Um, Hey, do you do graphic design for terrifying global nuclear war situations? If you do, don't give me a call. Maybe just think about your life because you've made some real errors. Anyway, um, hello to you, partly political listener, and I hope you are having a grand old week. I am um, recording this week's show from Ireland. I'm currently in beautiful Cork, which is lovely and sunny outside, but I wouldn't know because I'm trapped in a room. Um, I've had some very fun shows over here indeed, and I've also been attempting to drink all of the Guinness. Um, I don't want to guess, I'm not 100% sure, but I think I'm about 75% of the way through all the Guinness so far. Uh, so, uh, as a result of my location travelling and all the shows I've been doing at the Dublin Fringe and Cork. Comedy Festival, this week's show might be a little light, uh, unlike me, after all the goodness I've been drinking. Um, apologies for that, but it will be back to full whack next week, and thank you, as always, for listening to this weekly shoutings. Um also this week, big thank you to Graham, who bought me a few Guinnesses, um, sorry, coffees, at the Kofi site, which is ko-fi, ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro, if you'd like to donate with a one-off payment. And if you'd like to donate towards this show uh, more regularly, because it makes your ears and brains all happy, then you can head there, or you can become a Patreon donator at www.patreon.com forward slash parpolbro, where you can still get the recording of my Ed Fringe show uh, that I performed in August, but only for another week. So if you want that, get on the case, AM sap and of course if you're as broke as i am because you've just spent all the money you earned doing shows uh, on guinness then why not just give this show a lovely five-star review on itunes pocket cast stitcher or on hey scraps of paper thrown along your route to work so someone else uses them as found poetry and then is disappointed when it's even more boring and inane than found poetry usually is Yeah, I said that. What are you going to do found poets? Send me a threatening letter composed of someone's shopping list and a torn birthday card. You just try it. So, there is not much else to mention uh, this week in the admin bit, but let me just recommend another podcast to you for some interesting listening, if I may. Um, The Brexit podcast, uh, as it says on the tin, is a weekly podcast discussing all two sides of Britain shooting its own foot in order to stop anyone else wearing its trainers, i.e. Brexit. And this past week, they had Pete North from the Lever Lines, who has sort of progressive leave group and not at all aligned with the racist bunch anyway um it's a genuinely interesting chat and one that were i to have any faith that the government will listen to anything other than boris johnson's whale cries it does give you some possibilities for all of this ending more like say return of the jedi than empire strikes back which is bad in terms of films but better politics wise i mean you know except for the ewoks who i'd have no qualms about harvesting for ikea rug fur Anyway, it's genuinely very interesting and it has, I think, probably some of the most interesting ideas for the possibility of a good leave that I have heard so far, so do check it out. That is the Brexit podcast. Um, Oh, and this week I'm not going to be looking much at the German election because I'm going to do stuff about that on next week's show when I've sobered up from all the Guinness enough to use my GCSE German skills to not just laugh at the fact that the German word for art is Kunst. (laughs) Kunst. So instead, on this week's show, I interviewed Matt Turner, who is the editor of independent left-wing news site Evolve Politics, Uh, Plus, there is Brexit hoo-ha and conference hot news. Uh, Political conference, that is. Despite my desperate want to just talk about pears for five minutes instead to cheer everyone up. But you can't have that on a politics comedy podcast as the content about pears is never ripe and juicy enough. Like, Like pears. Do you see what I did there? I said right... Oh, Jesus. Sorry. Anyway, just quickly, before that, is a bit of this... Secretary of State for Environment and stunt double for Annabelle, Michael Gove, has been accused of suppressing, no, not just everyone's sex drives every time you realise him and his wife, word troll Sarah Vine, have children, but also figures about food price hikes after Brexit. The government refused to publish a report by DEFRA, the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, which means farming stuff, not when people cheat on their partners in the countryside, um, all about the increase in food costs, because the government say a premature disclosure of information could seriously mislead the public which considering their record of the last few years would have made me assume they'd release it as quickly as possible if misleading the public is the consequence. Unite the Union, who represent food workers, among others, have sent a Freedom of Information request for the report, but the government have rejected it. I mean, why let people know it's gonna get harder for them to eat? It might cause them to do something irrational like protest, you know, I mean, if they have the energy. Food prices are already rising post the referendum, especially food from abroad, with chocolate money now having more worth than the pound in most other countries. The food industry is concerned that post-Brexit there may be cost hikes for a new inspection routine so grub can meet various worldwide trading standards rather than, you know, just EU ones. So were DEFRA to release these figures, while it could cause outrage, it might also allow things to be put in place to prevent this happening when the final Brexit deal is sorted out. It is incredible that the government now appear to not want people to even be able to buy their cake in the first place, let alone eat it. Or perhaps it's all just part of Gove hoping that if most people in the UK die of starvation, by proxy the NHS will gain about £350 million extra a year just because there won't be anyone to see anymore and therefore old badly taxidermied weasel chops Gove would have been right all along. You know the House of Lords right? You know them right? It's kind of like night at the museum, but sort of all day long. You know them, right? Um, well, they've got all angry that the Electoral Reform Society referred to them as couch potato peers. And not because uh, several of the party peers look quite a lot like a weird cross between a spud and something from World of Leather. But more because the Electoral Reform Society discovered that members of the Lords, who'd only spoken five times or fewer in 2016-17, had still claimed more than £4 million in expenses which is a lot of money for not saying much, considering how much I say on this show and how little I get for it you'd sort of hope those five things the Lords had said had been real corkers like proper Facebook meme level mic dropping pearls of verbal awesome but while there are some very excellent peers like Baroness Tanny Grey Thompson who was a guest on this show back in episode 52 and in fact the most active members only claim half the allowed expenses it's more likely that those only saying five things are members such as human bagpipe Andrew Lloyd Webber who only pops by to vote for cutting tax credits because the hypocrisy of believing in something for nothing culture while you leech cash for spending most of your year sponging expenses and hanging out with tax dodging Gary Barlow is totally beyond him. The Electoral Reform Society also found that 4% of peers had not spoken or voted at all in the last parliamentary year, and the Commons Speaker John Burkow has now called for the Lords to cut the numbers of members from 798 to around 400, which would cut costs quite a lot. The House of Lords spokesman criticised the electoral reform comments, though, saying that it focused too much on verbal contributions because, yeah, guys, they made loads of methane contributions as well. Uh, But actually, the House of Lords spokesman did point out that the House had tabled 5,608 amendments to legislation, asked the government 7,395 written questions and published 170 committee reports all in the same year, which is a lot when you think about it. I mean, go on, think about it. Yeah, see, it's loads. But the House of Lords are looking into cost-cutting as well, and as peers don't get salaries, it is the expenses that have risen dramatically and need to change. There's a lot of call for hereditary peerages to go, which I agree with, and then maybe anyone who really doesn't ever attend should just be let loose, and that way it would be far more efficient and cost-effective. And maybe Andrew Lloyd Webber might finally get pushed back into the sea so he can whale underwater with his relatives instead. The Office of National Statistics has said that last year not a single baby boy was called Nigel with sources suggesting it's because people associate the name with populist barnacle Nigel Farage and they don't want their children to have anything to do with him because he's an awful disgusting arse of a human. Good and correct. Well done everyone. If it wasn't such a terrible name, I'd almost suggest everyone names their baby boys Everything Nigel Farage Hates as a first name instead, but I feel it may really complicate the school register. Though I bet they'd still get more letters actually addressed to them than I do. Ugh. Where do you get your news from? Old-fashioned newspapers once you've peeled your last few greasy chips from them and realise you've eaten half the headline and that's why that is banned now. Or perhaps you leave 24-hour news running on your television despite knowing it's why you won't listen to anything anyone in your real life says unless it's preceded with a dun-dun-dun-dun. Or maybe you get your news from news on the social medias or your local town crier or perhaps your weekly stalk that flies over all the houses and squawks things you should know about in Morse Code. Oh, is that last one just me? Ah, huh, weird. The way in which we digest our news has changed, especially as it now isn't part of our chips, and there are so many sources with so many of them politically biased in one way or another due to ownership or target audience that it's hard to know what to read when for the right information. The last couple of years have seen the decline of print media, meaning that online newspapers are now competing with the rest of the internet for readership. And that means that the rest of the internet has realised that actually, thanks to low website costs and a much wider reach than a print run, rather than having to choose between papers with perhaps a tired prerogative and mogul ownership, new news sites can emerge that focus on the news and info they want to portray. This means in the case of right-wing and alt-right politics, sites like Infowars and Breitbart have a beard, regularly ignoring all facts to shout at scared white teenagers till they become racists. Or in the UK, Guido Forks, which took the idea of everyone's favourite fireworks-based criminal and made him into a news site that's like If Your Curtain-Twitching Nan had a weekly meeting with the kid at school who tells porkies and wets the bed and then they wrote a blog together. Then there are various political sites, like Wings Over Scotland, which focuses on Scottish politics, and I guess by the name is run by a newsstalk. Political betting, which I guess makes sense, as I'd class many politicians as successful odds. Uh, politics.co.uk, which I use quite a lot and is edited by Ian Dunt, who's been on this show a few times. Uh, Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, Total Politics and Politics Home, to name a giant's handful. And then on left-wing politics, you have sites like The Canary, which is also a type of newsbird, and has been in the past criticised for disregarding editing guidelines and promoting correct info but is now to be regulated by impress uh, then you have media diversified which aims to change lack of representation in media by people of color left foot forward squawk box also done by storks labor left and evolve politics phew there's loads right so how do you choose Well, for this week's show, I interviewed Matt Turner, who is the editor of the latter one of those, Evolve Politics, because I wanted to know why on earth anyone would run an independent news site, how he guarantees the news is correct and regulated, and if creationists regularly insist his site doesn't exist. OK, I didn't ask him the last one, but the others are questions I'm genuinely interested in. As someone who reads so many different things all week to make this podcast, how can I be sure I'm getting the right information when there's so many sites to choose from? And why does everything have to have such clickbaity headlines that I will absolutely click on like a Pavlov's millennial? Matt very kindly agreed to let me ask him all these questions, despite the stupid time schedule I gave him because of all my travels this week. So whether you're a fan of Evolved Politics or not, I do hope you find this chat about the ever-changing face of news very interesting. Oh, and uh, this week, a very quick. Excuses, excuses. Uh, so I told myself that it was something to do with the room I was staying in in Cork, which made the recording at my end sound like I'm doing it through a balaclava. Um, uh, I'm not, and I wasn't, uh, despite how comfy that would have been and how upsetting for the people in the rooms opposite that could have seen through my window. Um, but it wasn't that. It's actually because I'm very tired and I thought it was going to be kicked out of my hotel room and I accidentally recorded through my headphones instead of through the microphone. So I sound very muffled and all a bit crap. I have tried to fix it as best as I can. But hey, it doesn't matter because you're mainly here to listen to Matt. And he sounds fine and has a lovely radio voice, almost a bit like Tom Ravenscroft. Um, So uh, there is a little bit of background noise on his end as well, but it should be all okay. Uh, I'm, yeah, sorry. Jesus, how have we got to 74 episodes? I still can't record a bloody interview. Anyway, I do hope you enjoy. Here is Matt.
3: Hi, Matt. Thank you very much for speaking with me today. Um, First question. probably quite, uh, quite a good one to start with, is what prompted you to start the Evolve Politics website?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, thanks for having me on. And I would say, you know, Evolve Politics was created around the same time that um, Jeremy Corbyn was elected leader of the Labour Party in um, 2015. And it was created, you know, it was it was to kind of counteract um, a lot of the reporting, which, which, we'd, uh, which we'd seen from the right-wing press about Jeremy Corbyn. It's proven to be, you know, a very valuable tool in not only kind of rebutting misinformation about him or the Labour Party or the wider left in general, but also kind of reporting on those um, marginalized issues that are often quite co you know conveniently um, omitted from much of um, mainstream political discourse and i think the the argument aimed at us in the first place when we started this was that these marginalized issues um stuff like cuts to the benefit system um you know they're they're not in the public interest so the mainstream media aren't reporting them but if that was the case you know why are sites like Evolve Politics and The Canary doing so well and growing so rapidly. You know, we had um, 1.3 million unique hits in the month of May. We've hit a million. um, uh, You know, every single month since we've had, you know, I think the week before the election, we had a Facebook reach of 17 million. Um, analysis from BuzzFeed and The Guardian has shown that our articles have been reaching just as many people, if not more people, than the kind of traditional mainstream media outlets online. So it's safe to say, you know, it's, it's, um, it's exceeded my expectations so far. And yeah, it's been a, it's been a crazy couple of years, really.
3: Cause I know you, um, I saw on your bio that you worked in the press beforehand. Is it, did you find it very evident when you were working, uh, I think you worked for The Independent didn't you, and a couple of things like that, did you find it very evident that there was a lack of reporting on certain social issues?
1: Um, well, I was I was always a commentator, so I've only really um, loitered in the opinion section of places like The Independent and RT. Um, but obviously, you know, I do see a what I perceive to be a lack of balance, um, not just in the right wing press. You know, that's kind of, you know, we, we take that as a given, but also in the centre-left press in places like The Guardian. Um, the Independent, not so much, but, you know, magazines like The New Statesman and The Mirror, we felt that not only were they not strong enough in defending what we perceived to be you know, a really hostile attitude towards um, labor and Jeremy Corbyn but you're right yeah they, they were often um, not as um, not as perceptive on social issues as we felt they could be so instead of um, you know badgering them to do it, we thought we'd kind of um you know take that into our own hands and try and create something new and accessible.
3: Sure and, and it was um, because I mean this isn't something uh new, sadly, obviously the press have, i mean from my point of view I've, I've, I've definitely noticed a bias in the press for quite some years, yeah. and probably probably my whole life really, or as long as I've you know been able to read newspapers and um, was why was uh, Corbyn being elected the, the catalyst for, for you deciding that, that now you needed another voice on the internet or you need another outlet for uh, proper news, i suppose or, or diff- you know news on social issues?
1: Well, I think the the kind of um, hostility aimed towards Jeremy Corbyn, it was a completely different kettle of fish. I mean, obviously, the right-wing press are always going to hate the Labour Party. They hated Ed Miliband and they went for him. But this is a kind of new level of vitriol aimed at one man. I think what changed it for me personally was, um, you know, reading the comment sections in places like The Guardian. This is supposedly, you know, a, um, a left-wing, Labour-sympathetic paper, but you really wouldn't realise that, looking at the comment section, some of the stuff that they they were saying about Jeremy Corbyn. They really were aping the um, right-wing rhetoric on him and his leadership. So I think you know we kind of decided that the this, this kind of entire saga would be a valuable opportunity um, for the mainstream media to look in the mirror. Um, there have been academic studies that have shown, even the Guardian are in contact with more anti- Corbyn sources than pro for their content. Um, you know, and interestingly on that point, we've had many, many Guardian readers come up to us and say we used to we used to um you know subscribe there we we kind of read the comment section and we read the coverage of corbyn and it makes me want to take my hair out you know so i i'd, I'd rather give you like 10 pounds a month instead they've looked at what the centre left press have to say about corbyn's leadership and you know they've they've had enough so they've kind of come over to us we we really wouldn't be doing as well as we did if there wasn't such a sheer lack of balance in the industry in the first place
3: sure and and do you... Have you found it easy to let, uh, i trying to think of the, the way to put this, but you know, have people found out about you easily? Because I, uh, there's so many internet news sites. Uh, how did you kind of make a splash or how did you let people know that you were there? What was the way that Evolve has grown?
1: Um, I think, you know, a lot of it is to do with the content that we put out because it is marginalized. And although there are a lot of news outlets out there, the stuff which we report on is quite rarely reported on. Um, I think also it helped that we built, we kind of um, built up a massive Facebook following from the very start because that's where content kind of truly goes viral. You know, Twitter is quite political. There's there's always going to be people on there who, um, who share your content and kind of retweet it, but it doesn't really kind of break the political bubble. Whereas in Facebook, it's kind of incredibly easy to, especially when, you know, we're the kind of people who thrive at sharing, um, you know, really kind of shareable memes and videos as well. Um, I think all of that put together, Especially considering we are, um, you know, an independent organization, it means that we're viewed as far more authentic and genuine than our kind of counterparts in the mainstream because we are kind of a group of people who largely do this in our spare time, um, struggle with other commitments, you know, I've just finished my undergraduate degree. Um, We're truly independent in the sense that we're not bankrolled by a conglomerate or a media oligarch. We are owned by our readers. You know, we pay our writers from the donations which our readers give us. Um, I think, you know, it also helps that we're honest and transparent about our political persuasion and the, and the line we take. Um, it's almost like a really cool collaboration between activism and journalism. And that's what we've discovered over the past two years. It's that that collaboration actually lights the fire in the belly of our readers and any journalism which does that instead of kind of forcing complaints or, you know, sides of kind of detestation, in, in my opinion, is destined for success.
3: So it's definitely been a real... Feel so, yeah, especially with the, the last snap election that kind of people are really in need of that kind of activism or almost kind of grassroots journalism as well as grassroots campaigning. It feels like there's been a real um, it, that's really helped kind of galvanise people.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I um, I totally agree with that. I mean, I, some people have kind of coined it like DIY politics or DIY journalism. Um, I think you know it does it does make us seem more accessible. It makes us seem more relatable as well. Like none of our writers are based in Westminster. You know, we're not we're not in that bubble. Water whatsoever we kind of source our stories by going on the internet and having like real conversations with people instead of um you know loitering behind doors in the house of commons although we will be doing that soon as well um because we've just been granted a um a parliamentary lobby pass which which we are looking forward to kind of getting started with um but on on the snap election you know you are completely right the snap election was really huge for us because it kind of vindicated what we've been saying over the past few months you know not only were we reaching an audience as big as the mainstream but our election prediction was spot on. You know, much has been made of, a, of the uh, fact that I put a bet on a Hong parliament um, at the end of April. You know, I predicted around 310, 320 seats. Uh, and the amount of kind of mainstream pundits who proclaimed that nobody saw this coming on the morning um, of the election was staggering. You know, the, the kind of reality is that much of the so-called mainstream media have ignored every kind of political shockwave of, of the last two years. Um, you know, Brexit, Trump, Corbyn, their heads are in the sand. And I think, you know, that kind of accessibility factor, we had our ears to the ground. And we knew that if Labour could kind of harness the quite palpable anger over the NHS, housing, um, tuition fees, and move that conversation away from the Brexit, Brexit, Brexit line, then it was going to be a very close election. And I think that's something which um, you know most people in the mainstream completely neglected. And it gave us even more of an opportunity to say, you know, we know what we're talking about. You can't discredit us any longer. You can't try and palm us off as some kind of like corbonite propaganda tool because he, because our kind of analysis of British politics at the moment is 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 largely true to form.
3: Mm, absolutely. Do, do you find that being online as well, rather than say, and I, and I mean, I know that the print press is sort of dying anyway, and it's a lot of online. Anyway, but you, as, you're, as you're primarily online and you're using a lot of social media, do you find that means you're getting um, perhaps a clearer idea of what people want because you're it's easier for people to reply to you and to contact you?
1: Yeah, no, we are we are definitely um, more accessible um, in that respect. I think so. I think it's a double-edged sword, though, because obviously, um, you know, social media and what was going on on social media wasn't enough to swing the 2015 election. You know, Ed Miliband had the Millie fandom on Twitter, and that was about it. Um, I think I think you know over over the last two years that has changed a lot. Um, more and more people are getting their news from social media now. Um, you know, the the trust. In the print press and the traditional media is declining year on year, still. And this is only the beginning, in my opinion. You know, at the moment, social media is. Um I think it's reached a point where it is able to influence the outcome of the election, as we saw in the snap election in June. Um, but like I would stress, this is really only the beginning for the influence that people on social media could have. We could really, you know, if we do harness it over the next five years, over this kind of, um, over over Theresa May's term, then, you know, our impact and the the influence that we have on British politics could easily double or triple by then.
3: And do you think that's, that's partly because, I mean, <clears throat> uh, one of the things I've noticed about your site is that you have uh, very serious articles, but you also have some that have uh, these quite sort of um, evocative headlines in a kind of BuzzFeed-style Buzzfeed manner. You know, this, uh, what was the one I saw today, this is why millennials will never get on the housing line With would never in kind of capital letters. And, and, I mean, that absolutely appeals to me. That's what I click on. But is that, and you post a lot of memes and a lot of gifs. And so are you kind of embracing... Um, you know, are you aiming at a certain age demographic? Because that's, that's a kind of internet article that aims or feels like it aims at, at kind of millennials and younger.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I guess, you know, we, we, we definitely try to. Um, we've, we've always tried to kind of um, fall on the right side of the line of um, headlines which are intriguing and accessible and easy to understand, but also don't kind of delve into this, like, really, really bait kind of clickbait content we we do try to kind of stray away from that um, when when we're looking at kind of um, who we target ace demographic wise it's really interesting because a lot of people have kind of asked this to uh, ask, ask me this before. And even though, you know, we do kind of try and um, whip up support for kind of left-wing causes amongst young people, the actual age demographics of people who do kind of like our Facebook page and regularly um, click on stuff and share stuff, it's actually the t- kind of 25 to 40-year-olds who who kind of take the majority here. Um, I guess, you know, a lot of them are using social media now as well. A lot of them are on Facebook, so I wouldn't really read too much in into that because we still do get, you know, a lot of kind of 18 to 24-year-olds, a lot of students, um, you know, a lot of people in universities up and down the country, they, they've all heard of the politics and they've all heard of the canary. And, you know, that's that's really great for us because that's what the Corbyn movement was um, was kind of founded on. It was offering a real choice for, you know, mostly people under 40 who felt that like they weren't in control of their lives anymore.
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, I mean, I'm 36. And it does, it does appeal to me. But I'm just in, in my head. I think, as as you're saying, uh, you know, there felt like there was a a rise of youth votes for Labour, and so that's why I wondered if um, social media and kind of galvanising people in that uh, forum is has helped that.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely has. I um, mean, you know, it's just the the kind of um, the kind of content that we put out has got a really viral quality to it. Not not kind of every article will. Will do as well as we want, obviously. But the the amount that we did during the election and since the election as well, it's clear that we're having kind of a real impact on people's timelines, which we didn't really have um, probably up until you know the start of this year. Um, I think considering we're outside of the Westminster bubble, you know, it's been it's been pretty impressive. I think um, some kind of Buzzfeed analysis, which got put out just after the election, that it, it, um, kind of insinuated that one of our stories on the elephant ivory trade in a kind of on um, Tory MP. Line, that could have swung at least one seat in the 2017 general election just from being shared on social media alone, which is, you know, absolutely massive, really. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And um, the big question is how do you, because you're an independent site, how do you regulate uh, your contributions to the site? Because I know that the Canary have just been, uh, they're now being regulated by Impress, which is a very recent development. Um, are you considering something like that? Do you have a, another method of kind of making sure things are factually correct?
1: Um, impress impress actually approached us um, last month and we did politely decline um, the offer um, not because we we don't want to be regulated but we, we didn't feel that that was the right fit for us at the time um, you know we take we take fact checking and accuracy very very seriously and I mean if, if you look at the site you wouldn't really find any any real problems with any of the content that we put out which can't be said of you know all of the um, all of the kind of new left wing media sites out there at the moment, um, we wear our political allegiances on our sleeve, but yes, you know much of the right wing press like the Sun still try and claim that they 're objectively reporting. The kind of salient issues of the day. And they've kind of, you know, gone as far as to say that they think we're too biased to be a part of the lobby, Um, you know, the parliamentary lobby, and we're too biased to be a serious contender um, in this kind of new changing media landscape. And I think that's absurd. You know, I I think they really ought to look in the mirror because you really couldn't tell the difference between sites like ours and sites that pride themselves on having um, kind of accredited journalism qualifications. Um, you know, if, if you look at some of the garbage, quite frankly, coming out of places like um, The Sun, where they did something about Jeremy Corbyn doing a dance at Remembrance Sunday Parade, you know, that that, that was just absurd. We have never delved into um, completely fictitious stuff like they have to be honest with you. Um, we we really don't have a problem with accuracy. Um, we don't have a problem with fact checking. We kind of pride ourselves on going through a kind of three-stage editing process. Um, we pride ourselves on the amount of hyperlinks we like to put in articles. And the only reason why people, you know, kind of sometimes insinuate that we do have a problem with accuracy is because they know that as journalists, they're guilty as sin of spinning in the exact same way. So, you know, I don't know what else I can say. We're playing the game. We're kind of playing the game that they've created and we're starting to beat them at it. You know, these these kind of qualifications or regulators like Impress has never really been indicative of high quality reporting. All you've got to do is look at the kind of many inaccuracies of um, newspapers when reporting on parliamentary affairs involving the Labour Party to kind of see that. I think in this day and age, you know, it's safe to say that there are all right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on
0: us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG.
2: And we'll be back with Matt in a minute, but unfortunately first, it's time for this week's
3: Richard Fordow. Richard Fordow.
2: Richard Fordow. So, Theresa May's speech happened, and that is definitely one of the things you could say about it. And another thing you can say about it is that it generally caused less ripples than a duck farting in the bath. The three main issues up in the air that are causing stagnation in Brexit negotiations are Northern Ireland's border with the Republic of Ireland, the rights of EU citizens in the UK, and the payment to the EU that honours the commitments of the UK's membership up until 2020. And those areas were mentioned, but more in passing than in depth. You know, like the way you might throw in that the criminal looked like he probably drinks tea while spending the rest of the witness report unnecessarily telling the police about all your favourite movie files that you had on the laptop that was stolen. On Northern Ireland, Theresa May said that we will protect progress made in Northern Ireland, which I assume she means about the border with the Republic, otherwise the DUP might ruin that agreement they have, as progress is definitely not what they're about. May also said we will not accept any physical infrastructure at the border, which is good, but doesn't actually provide another solution. Unless it is a hint that they're going to have some sort of ghost infrastructure where specters pass through traded goods to check them, or a philosophical barrier where you're not asked what you're carrying over, but why you're carrying it. Or it's more likely that she still just doesn't have a clue. Both the Irish Taoiseach Leo Vradica and the European Parliament Brexit coordinator Guy Verhofstadt have said that the UK have not yet found a satisfactory answer to the border issue and that a unique solution has to be found. Personally, I suggest the unique solution of Guinness. I mean, it won't really help the border issue, but based on my past week here, it's very tasty and would at least make everyone feel temporarily happy until they sober up and realise how shit things are. On the rights of EU citizens in the UK, Theresa May said we have made significant prowess on how we look after European nationals living in the UK. But then she didn't say what that prowess was. I mean, anyone can do that. I can tell you I've made significant prowess in being able to shoot flames from my elbows, but unless I show you a picture of a very awkward incident at a snooker club, it means nothing. May went on to say, we want you to stay, we value you and we thank you, which feels not unlike when a parent tells their kid, we want to keep the dog, we really do, before then saying that we can't and sending it to be put down. And on the divorce bill, Theresa May said the UK will honour commitments we have made during the period of our membership, which is what you're meant to do. But she didn't mention exactly how much the UK would be paying. Lots of papers have said that there would be an offer of 20 billion euros, but she didn't mention that in the speech at all. It kind of reminds me of when friends of mine are trying to split the bill at a restaurant and I just keep pretending that I don't know what mine comes to hoping that they'll just tell me a figure eventually and I'll get away with all that extra ice cream I had. So, the speech didn't say anything we really needed to know which feels like a tradition for May but the one thing we did find out is that the UK will be looking at a two-year transition period after March 29th 2019 where we will have access to the single market, customs union and all that and keep various laws and procedures in order to give us more time to work out what on earth to do. It's kind of like large-scale stalling, because they finally realised triggering Article 50 without any plans in place was like hitting the airlock door button before popping your spacesuit on. But I wouldn't go so far as to say May realising they need more time on this is a good thing, as two years still feels very short-sighted for all the work that needs to be done. But the short-sightedness is definitely improvement on her previous complete blindness and insistence on walking into the same walls over and over again. Overall, though, uh, we mostly learned that with no EU officials attending May's speech and her using taxpayer money to head over to Florence, it's almost as if the subtext was, hey, on the plus side, once we leave, leaders that no one has any faith in can't just have freebie holidays in Europe anywhere near as easily. I can't help but feel if Theresa May was a real British patriot, she'd have done the speech from a caravan park in Cumbria. Meanwhile, at the Labour conference, members voted not to discuss Brexit at the event because, hey, it's no biggie. Why bother? It's not like it's a hot topic or anything. I mean, who's talking about Brexit? Only losers. Uh, Grassroots movement Momentum had urged its members not to support the motion on Brexit and instead they pushed for the subjects at the conference to be Grenfell Tower, rail growth and investment, public sector pay, workers' rights, the NHS housing and social care, which are all important. And while there has been a lot of anger that Brexit wasn't chosen, Labour have backed that it wasn't chosen, saying that it's the members who choose the motions and that Brexit will be discussed across the board, which it has to be, considering it's going to affect nearly all the areas they're going to be discussing otherwise. It seems pointless discussing workers' rights if you have absolutely no idea what they're going to be in two to four years' time. Though it does appear that Brexit was mainly not chosen so that it didn't highlight divides in the party on it and it would make the appearance that they're now building a consensus across the different factions. Yeah, cool. I mean, now instead everyone can just see all the info fighting in Labour that will occur about areas like rail or social care instead. Great! Shadow Foreign Secretary Emily Thornberry insisted Labour's front bench were all pulling in the same direction over Brexit, but of course that could mean that they're all pulling away from each other while facing inwards. Shadow Secretary for Brexit Keir Starmer made a speech to the conference on Monday where he accused the Tories of joyriding the economy off a cliff edge, which is not fair as I don't think they do anything for joy as that's not how the dark side works. Starmer said he didn't think the options of staying in the single market or customs union should be swept off the table just yet, but when criticised that Labour had basically let the Conservatives do what they want, Starmer said that rather than lay down rash ideological red lines during negotiations, Labour had settled on a position that respected the result but also prioritised the economy and trade in exit talks. Which sounds a bit like a paradox to me, as it's going to be pretty hard to do the latter when you're absolutely doing the former. Starmer insisted that Labour are the grown-ups in the room when it comes to Brexit negotiations, but considering they aren't in the room when Brexit negotiations happen, that means they've left Grandad Barnier with a petulant child David Davis and no emergency number to call if he runs out of nappies. Still though, it is hard for Labour to have a strong stance on Brexit when the people they're opposing don't even have a stance or even an awkward sitting position and instead of flailing around on the floor like a struggling bug. Perhaps it may can work out exactly what it is her government is doing, the negotiations can move on, and then Labour can actually assume an opposition position. Or, more likely, it'll get to 2021 and May will make a speech in Rome, probably symbolising as she says the eternal city and eternal relationships between UK and Europe while the rest of the world will realise, oh, she's there because it's the home of the collapse of an empire. Then her speech will say something about how, hey, sorry we still have that DVD of yours but I don't know where it is now, before asking if there's any way we can push things back another few years as she got distracted by things and promises that she'll get on the case as soon as she's binge-watched Stranger Things Series 5. And now back to Matt.
3: Sure, it's, I mean it's interesting. You say because I do think you know the uh, the illusion of a press regulator actually meaning things are regulated isn't isn't necess- it doesn't necessarily work um, as we've seen with a lot of the, the print press. But, it, but I, I wondered if because I think. Um, even though people are very on board with online news sites now and use them regularly, it's still a fairly new development in terms of media. And I think, especially when you look at a lot of the independent kind of right-wing news sites, if you look at sort of the the horrors of Breitbart or Infowars and things like that, which all they do is they kind of push out a lot of fake news, um, do you think that makes it hard to convince people of left-wing news sites that they're any different you know news sites like yourself or the canary or media diversified or any opposed to how do you kind of say to people are online and and i know obviously with the left-wing politics comes a different kind of angle anyway but do you think that that kind of um taints what you're doing and it's harder to persuade people that what you're doing is serious and more
1: accurate um, I think I think when it comes to um, that, I think actions speak a lot louder than words. So I could kind of come on here and give platitude after platitude about how how we're so much different to Breitbart and infowars and how we're not conspiratorial and we are one hundred percent, you know, kind of straight edge. And I mean, I, me, see, I, I
3: see, just as a reader, I know you're very different to Breitbart, or I wouldn't ever log on. <laughs> I, I know, exactly.
1: Um, yeah. exactly. But, but, you know, some people have inferred that we're some kind of left-wing Breitbart, which is kind of absurd, really. Um, I see a kind of parallel in the sense that, you know, both new up-and-coming um, media outlets who are kind of... Um, kind of garnering readers have kind of flown the kind of center ground at some point in the last 10 years to either the kind of left or the right but that's as far as the comparison um, goes really obviously InfoWars that's just you know that's just absurd that's like a completely different kettle of fish I would take great offense um, if anyone if anyone tried to compare InfoWars (laughs) but obviously there is a kind of credibility gap Um, I understand that because we are the kind of new kids on the block Um, that credibility gap is um, you know getting smaller and smaller by the day, because we keep on being proved right, Um, you know, nobody can pick apart any of our articles, because when they try to, they often find that, you know, the, the kind of sources that we have, generally, are bang on, you know, some people have complained, um, about us writing about the bias of maybe the BBC or the mainstream media, and some people have just kind of taken a headline or taken like um, a subheading and said this is this is absurd, this is inaccurate. But if they look at the article, we usually sourcing kind of in-depth academic analysis. Um, you know, of the BBC, there's many papers on the systemic bias of the mainstream media um, against kind of left-wing causes in general, um, or even quoting, you know, the BBC Trust themselves, who ruled that Laura Coonsberg's comments on Corbyn and shoot to kill left a lot to be desired. So, you know, I think, you know, even if the criticism does come our way, I think we're doing them a favour. Um, we don't mean to be kind of vitriolic about it, but, you know, the, the problems which the, the mainstream media face, which we're trying to highlight, and I think, you know, Breitbart do in their own twisted way. Um you know, it, there's clearly a systemic and pervasive problem. And we're deeply concerned about the impact on public opinion. This might have yeah, the this as an antidote to the Daily Mail and Breitbart, not the equivalent, that's a difference. Um, you know, clearly for the analogy to hold, an antidote um, has to contain a feature of the Daily Mail or Breitbart, and to be honest, I just think that's our accessibility—the fact we write in a way that is very easy to understand. The groups people, uh, you know, like, like, like you've already said before, the content we write is, um, it's obviously very different.
3: Sure. But I mean, that's an important n- need for news to have. You know, it's got to be accessible. Otherwise, it's not very helpful as news. You know, people need to be able to read it and understand what's yeah. going on. I think it's it's, um, it's very necessary. And it is something that, that while I uh, am not a fan of many of the tabloids, it's what they do very well. Um, yeah. Well, you know, people read it and go, I understand what this says, uh, whether or not it's true. Um, But do you – it's interesting you sort of mentioned there because I think that there's been such a public distrust in media now for quite some time. Do you feel like, I mean, obviously, uh, online sites are the way forward in print press time, but do you feel like trust is going to, not just with your site, but do you think it's going to ever return? Are there any news outlets other than your own that you think kind of are better regulated and, and showing that there's a way forward along with your site to uh, kind of a, a media that people can trust again?
1: Um, I think, you know, I, um, I did an interview last week where I kind of called it the changing of the guard. Um, you know, I don't think it gets any. I don't think it gets any better for traditional press outlets because, as we've seen over the last two years, they haven't really taken any kind of um, critique to heart. They're still ploughing along with the same content that they put out, kind of every single day. Um, they have not changed one bit in response to the backlash, which has kind of been forced upon them by people on both the the uh, left and the right. And I also think it's just the beginning for us. You know, we're kind of only just getting started. People are kind of inviting me on shows now and talking about sites. Like a bold politics and the canary, like we're here, we're on the way up. People are now always talking about the traditional, you know, print press, like it's on the way out. Um, and I don't think that's going to change at all in the, in the near future. Um, I think sites like the Canary, Squawk Box, um, Evolve Politics, obviously, and then more social media-based ones like Another Angry Voice. All of those have um, real potential and a real future in you know reshaping and reclaiming uh, the media as well. You know, it, any of the criticisms which rained at us from the mainstream. It just makes them look, you know, sad and bitter. To be honest with you, um, when when sites like ours take a private, you know, you, you, know, you know, sites like ours take a line, um, an editorial line, like every private media outlet does, where we're palmed off as fake news not to be taken seriously. You know, established journalists have made that claim to me before. Um And at the end of the day, people aren't stupid. They know that the kind of so-called war on fake news has often been driven and publicized by the very people who are signaling their fake outrage over it now. They they, they see the double standards. They see that we're the new kids on the block and, you know, I, th- I think the British always like an underdog and that's who we are at the moment. Um so I can see, I can see it becoming the new mainstream in in the next five to ten years. I don't, I think we've got the momentum, and the way that British politics seems to be shifting at the moment, I think we are shifting with it. Um, and yeah, no, that's not going to change anytime soon.
3: So do you, do you think, in sort of, do you foresee maybe sort of ten, fifteen years time, we're going to have a? Uh, a, a public that looks to online media i mean not just i'm not talking about newspapers but kind of independent sites like yourself at, for their news content primarily
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. Um I think we've seen a huge change take place in the last 5 years or so. But it's only the beginning really. Um if you, if you look at the if you look at the readership of papers like the Sun and the Daily Mail, obviously they're still huge. They're still incredibly influential. That 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 kind of can't be disputed. But they are losing readers you know, on a monthly basis now, people are moving online, they're moving to their timelines on Facebook and Twitter to try and find out what's really going on. And that's something which we've taken advantage of. But it's something that, you know, a lot of the mainstream press 'll we'll catch up with as well you know the independent for example um, they've gone online only now, um, a lot of kind of sites have either put up a paywall or asking for donations um, they're kind of trying to adapt to this um, to this landscape where people are looking solely on their timelines for news now, but we're the ones who have turned it into a kind of financially viable um, you know, project without compromising our integrity. We don't rely on um, the kind of advertisements in their newspapers to kind of prop up the online site, which is you know, which which is what um, a lot of the mainstream papers have been forced to do.
3: Absolutely, which I, I want to ask you about in just a minute. But just um, to go back to the the kind of future of media, I mean, uh, devil's advocate question really is: Do you? Uh, you're very, as you said, you put your politics in your sleeve. It is all politics, which I I admire. Um, but do you think there is a danger that people will continue to only look at the sites that they? Build? Will will we kind of continue with people looking at media echo chambers, but only in an online fashion now, rather than print? You know, because I, as, as someone that does this myself, I very much look at a lot of the sites that I like first and the ones yeah. that I agree with. Um, and do you think that's a, a danger if everything's becoming kind of independent sites that report what they want to, um, whether or not they, they admit to what they're reporting like, like you do? You know, um, are we in a dangerous world where people are only going to direct themselves to what they want to be directed to?
1: Um, I think that's a really interesting question because when, when we first launched, you know, the accusation was kind of aimed at us immediately. Oh, yeah, you're just, you're just kind of preaching to the converted. You're preaching to that kind of labor-supporting bubble. But I think when something truly goes viral on social media, um, every single bubble kind of gets burst immediately, and that's what we found. You know, yes, some of our articles may only be read by people who agree with us or people who back, you know, Jeremy Corbyn or a like, huge lefties, but the, the kind of viral articles which we get, we, we, we burst that bubble um, a long time ago because as long as the headlines are intriguing, as long as the headlines are accessible, even if you don't agree with it, you kind of want to click on it to find out what's going on and what we're saying. Um, and in that process, I, I honestly do think you win over – A few hearts and minds as well, because it just offers that alternative point of view. And I think social media, in particular, exposes people to more alternative points of views. Even even if you don't click on it, you see the headline, you see the kind of caption, and you see the comments underneath. And and I think it gets something in your brain working a little bit more, Um, and you don't really get that with traditional print press.
3: Sure. I mean, I do also think that a lot of the, for example, on your site, a lot of the issues you tackle are social issues, and a lot of people um, are interested in them, if not affected by them, uh, which obviously will draw people to be interested by the pieces themselves. Um, I wanted to just go back to the the funding uh, that you mentioned earlier, because uh, obviously the big problem with media that we've had for years is a lot of the large corporations are backed by big uh, moguls or oligarchs, and that's why... uh, You know, they often have quite an opinionated voice, but it does give them financial backing. So, you said earlier that you um, pay all your journalists through donations that you get. How viable is that? Can you continue in that manner? I mean, sort of remember that there were papers, there was the New Day that lasted only a handful of months earlier in the year. You know, it's quite hard for new media sites to kind of keep going.
1: Yeah. Um, well, what I would say is, you know, we we kind of pay our writers in two ways. You know, we do have adverts on the site, and we do get um, we do get paid for those adverts. Um, that's just kind of standard Google AdSense. So we're not kind of striking deals with, um, you know, HSBC or BAE Systems or God knows who to do like a front page splash. Um, but we pay our writers a flat fee, like I said, as well as fifty um, percent of the advertising commission that they bring into the site. Um, the flat fee. Actually varies on a monthly basis, which makes it more sustainable for us. Just because it's calculated by the amount of donations and the amount of subscriptions we receive in one month, and then it's divided by the amount of articles produced. So literally 100% of the kind of donations which are made to us by our readers, all of it goes back into our writers' pockets. Um, interestingly, you know, I found that paying the flat fee dissuades the kind of sensationalism and hyperbole that's often linked to kind of commission-related writing, Um, as no matter how well the piece does, people know that they are going to get paid for their work, even if it's not a lot. And that idea we kind of got from um, me working in the door-to-door sales industry for a while, funnily enough. Um, You know, I know people who worked for a basic wage and those who worked for kind of commission-only, kind of pay-per-click equivalent. Um... Those working commission-only jobs felt so under pressure that their performance actually suffered. I think the kind of same can be applied here. The safety net of a guaranteed fee per article for a site like ours with the actual you know tiny income in the grand scheme of things that we have is something that we're actually really, really proud of.
3: Sounds brilliant. Um, and I just wanted to ask as one, one final question. Thank you for talking to me today. Um, apart from uh, your own Twitter and Evolve Politics, obviously, uh, it's one thing that I ask all the guests on this podcast is, uh, can you just recommend to the listeners any favourite commentators or sites that you have um, and that you look to for investigative reporting or kind of reliable news? Anyone else that you can recommend?
1: For sure, yeah. Um, I really love what the guys at Squawk Box are doing, Um, another kind of very similar New Left Media website. Um, I think they're, you know, really, really good on um, issues like internal Labour Party issues. Um, You know, they expose a lot of the stuff which is going on behind the scenes, how um, a lot of people on the right of the Labour Party are still kind of very intent on undermining Jeremy Corbyn, for example. Um, Squawk Box does a great job at exposing that. Um, A few commentators, obviously most of you have probably heard of Um, Matt Zarb-Cousin on Twitter, Jeremy Corbyn's former press spokesman. He is fantastic. Um, Aaron Bastani and the guys at Navarra Media as well letting really, really important work putting out kind of great video content as well which is something that we haven't really kind of delved into yet but I know for a fact works. Um, And If we go over to the United States for a minute, I would say the guys at the Intercept as well and kind of Glenn Greenwald and that organization is doing brilliant work exposing a lot of the stuff which is going on in America at the moment as well
2: mega thank you to Matt for speaking with me um, as I said he really did very kindly keep this interview despite me rearranging it a couple of times due to hotel Wi-Fi issues um, Evolve Politics can be found at EvolvePolitics.com on Twitter at evolvepolitics and on Facebook as well at evolvepolitics. and Matt's personal Twitter is MattTurner4L if you'd like to follow him on there as well um, I do check Evolve Politics a few times a week uh, for this show and for life really um, as there's often info on there that I won't find anywhere else that regularly leads me to look in stories from that I didn't immediately think of. But as with all of these things, I would advise that you read a variety of different news sites to get your news from, as I often find that a real cross-section of media actually helps me feel like I get the full stories eventually. Um, of course, I don't mean read the Daily Mail or The Sun, though, as I wouldn't put you through that when you could get the same sort of information watching a dog bark at a reflection of itself for about four hours. Uh, As always, if you have someone you'd like me to interview or a subject you'd like me to interview someone about, do drop me a line at ParPobro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast group on Facebook, or email me on partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could write it on silk, roll it into a ball of wax, and then swallow it, eventually passing it through your digestive system, and at some point when they eventually remove that fatberg in the London sewer, I'll see your request in all the pictures of it, all surrounded by lard and horror. I mean, really, as always... Email is probably easiest. It's September, October, so it stands to reason that right now it's conference season. That's political conferences, not conference pears. Although if you plant them around now, they'll be really nice for next August. If you like pears, that is. And if you don't, then maybe don't do that. Oh, conference season. Conference season. That's right, it is conference season, the time of year when parties like the Liberal Democrats or Labour head to seaside resorts to maybe symbolise looking outwards as they discuss the future while the Conservatives head to Manchester because their idea of a good time is being surrounded by people they neglect the entire rest of the year. I am heading to one day of the Labour conference this week and so I will try to get my... I am heading to one day of the Labour conference this week, so I will try my best to get some Vox pops from people if I can. Although, despite contacting the press office over a month ago, I've still not heard if I'm allowed to take my microphone without a press pass, so we'll see what happens. I mean, I may just deliver you a variety of different clips of audio of me being bundled out of a number of different venues. But until then, I thought it'd be good to have a quick update on highlights of the Lib Dems and Labour events so far. First up, the Lib Dem conference last week, which was opened by new old leader, Vince Cable, who maintained that they are the party of Remain. And while I once could make the joke that they should just be the party of the few that are remaining, they have now membership of over 100,000 people since the Brexit referendum, as the result of being the only fully pro-Remain party. Vince Cable berated Corbyn for sitting on the fence about Brexit, and he said that the Conservatives are putting internal politics before the lives of 4 million EU citizens in the UK and UK citizens in the EU. Cable demanded that the British public had given a vote on the outcome of Brexit, which he said wasn't a rerun or a second referendum, and then said that it was, but it was one about facts. I mean, fair play, but if the last few years is anything to go by, I'm worried most people would vote against facts after denouncing them all as fake news. Deputy Leader of the Lib Dems, Jo Swinson, made her first speech since announcing that she wouldn't be running for leadership earlier in the year. Her speech also pushed for an exit from Brexit, which I guess would be a Brexit exit or an ex-Brexit. Oh God, why won't someone just think of podcasters like me when they do the marketing on these things? Fuck's sake. There was also a debate in the Lib Dem conference on the emergency motion of delaying the rollout of universal credit because, as predicted, it's more of a universal disaster, with many waiting ages for money to arrive and is contributing towards the increase in homelessness as payments to landlords are being made late. The Lib Dems voted to demand that the government pause the rollout, which is good, uh, though you do sort of wish that maybe they should have mentioned that way back when they're in the coalition government. On the fringes, members attended a reception for the British Association for Shooting and Conservation, two words that don't usually go together. I mean, do you shoot first and conserve later, or is it the other way around? There were also fringe events by the Green Liberal Democrats who used the conference to launch a fully-costed plan for a zero-carbon Britain by 2050, which is a good and necessary idea. And they were discussing about how we move on from the dark shadow of Nick Clegg's failed promise on rising tuition fees which still looms over them. But overall, the opinion is that with Vince Cable only becoming leader two months ago and only a slight rise in seats at the snap election, the Lib Dems are still finding their feet as to who they now are. As it stands, Cable intends to lead the Lib Dems to power by, as he says, offering a mix of hope and realism. Two things that really don't go together much in today's world, but hey, at least if it doesn't work out for them, they can probably get some sort of deal with Pixar. The Labour Conference is still underway and I'll report more on it next week, but before it started there were already indications that they are still less of a party and more of a squabble, as various key figures, including Andy Burnham, were kicking up a stink as to why they couldn't speak on the main platform. Corbyn said it was to allow delegates more speaking time than in the past, so there'd have to be fewer speakers to allow for this. I mean, as someone who's organised comedy gigs before, he could have at least allowed Burnham an open five spot in the middle, so he could then advertise his solo show about How I Escaped the Westminster Bubble Elsewhere, which probably has a poster with Burnham superimposed over image from the 70s TV show, The Prisoner. Apart from the Brexit vote, other discussions across the Labour conference have included Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell announcing that if Labour were to get into government, they would scrap PFI schemes and end existing contracts, handing them back to the public sector, which would no doubt be expensive in the short term, but much cheaper in the very long term. McDonnell also said that they would nationalise rail, water, energy and Royal Mail, in that order, I believe, which would mean that you'd get cheaper rail tickets at first, but they still wouldn't arrive in the post for five days, and when they do, it'll be at 3pm while you're out. McDonnell's speech essentially bombed away any remnants of Tony Blair's new Labour policies from the party, but considering Blair's history, he might be quite a fan of that. Speaking of former party leaders, Ed Miliband made a speech at Momentum's World Transformed Festival where he said he was wrong about Corbyn, so he can now add that to his long list of things he's wrong about, including a massive fucking stone and terrible mugs. Elsewhere, Barry Gardner, the shadow international trade secretary, said that the party will demand a veto on any post-Brexit trade deal with Trump's USA. I mean, I can see where he's coming from. And of course, no one wants to trade with old bonkers orange shells. But if we can't secure a decent trade deal with the EU post-Brexit and then we block the US as well, we're going to really have to get good at growing stuff or start adding cannibalism into British values. Lastly, Jeremy Corbyn told BBC Points West they would not rule out cancelling the Hinkley Point C power station unless it was already built and in operation. I mean, he did actually say we wouldn't rule out pulling the plug, but I'm not sure you can do that with nuclear power stations without causing an awful mess. Anyway, more on all the conference stuff next week when I have more time. And that is all for this week's partly political broadcast thank you once again for listening and if you haven't already subscribed please please do also please give the show a review on your favourite sites web or landfill and if you can afford to please chuck me a donation to patreon.com forward slash purple or ko-fi.com forward slash purple thank you as always to Acust for hosting the show and my brother the last skeptic for all the music I shamelessly steal off him with his permission uh, his new album this is where it gets good is out on September the 29th so do check that out and by the time you hear this show I'll be at or have been to a date at the Labour conference, unless I've got trapped in the middle of a West Side Story-style fight between party factions and I don't make it out of there alive, or at least without being covered in various badges, stickers and knitted goods. Uh, And I'm going to report on all that I see and uh, attend next week, so you can look forward to that. I'll also no doubt be talking about Donald Trump tweeting that his dad is bigger than Kim Jong-un's. I'll be all up in your ears then. Bye! This week's show was brought to you by the number 2021, which is both the year that Brexit transitions will be done now and, if you write it vertically, the only number that looks like a Cyclops Elvis doing an ambivalent expression, which he would do if we were around in 2021, when no doubt the Brexit transition still won't be over.